So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode contains some descriptions of torture, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. In the summer of 2007, around a dozen Afghan boys and men were brought into Kandahar Airfield to be questioned. I interrogated every single one of them. I was there. That's Ahmed Mulgari. He's the language and cultural advisor for the Canadian forces that we told you about in the last episode. A Canadian himself, he eventually became so popular with the locals that Kandahari elders wanted him to be governor. But that would come later. On this day, Ahmed was tasked with interrogating these dozen or so Afghans. The Afghans had been detained by Canadian soldiers after a nighttime raid on Hazrat Jibaba, an area in the north of Kandahar city. The Canadian forces had received an unconfirmed report that a high-value target was hiding out there. They didn't find who they were looking for. Instead, they came back with these dozen boys and men. And when Ahmed interrogated them, they all wanted to know one thing. They're asking one question. They say, why did you bring us? Bit by bit, Ahmed pieced together what had happened. The Canadian forces approached the target compound by rooftop. Because it was hot, no electricity. So usually people sleep on top of the roof. A 17-year-old boy was sleeping on top of the house that night. He woke up because of the sound of explosion and he started running. A Canadian soldier shot him in the back of the head, killing him. They found a pistol nearby, but tests later showed that the boy's fingerprints weren't on it. So in other words, Canadian soldiers had just killed an unarmed teenager who was trying to flee. Then they went to all these houses and arrested from 10 to 92 years old people, and they brought everybody to calf. The Afghans were furious. The brother of that person who killed, he was saying, you came to my house in my country. You killed my brother and then you bring me here. All of the boys and men were then transferred to the custody of the National Directorate of Security, Afghans' notoriously brutal intelligence service. Ahmed says the Canadian soldiers did this to make it appear that these detainees had been legitimate targets. Ahmed doesn't know what happened to them in NDS custody, but there's a high likelihood they were tortured. Actually, throughout the whole interrogation, I cried. And they knew it. 
I was looking at it as if my father or my grandfather is in front of me and he's being interrogated and he's being accused and abused just because who he is. They knew that these were innocent people. But then they made the mistake. Rather than rectifying it and apologizing and compensating, they tried to cover it up. I felt like I was betraying my people. The Afghan detainee scandal became the defining story of Canada's war in Kandahar. It exposed Canada's complicity and direct involvement in war crimes. And it helped fuel the insurgency that eventually brought down the Afghan government. In this episode, we're going to bring you the stories of five men that helped shape this scandal. A translator and a diplomat who became whistleblowers. A lawyer who refused to let the story die an Afghan journalist whose investigations rocked Canada, a country he'd never set foot in, and a soldier who became the Minister of Defense and ensured that we'll never know the full extent of what really happened. I'm Arshi Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. During the war in Kandahar, Canada and other NATO countries faced a problem. What to do with the people that they captured during military operations? They could hold them for a short period of time in Kandahar airfield, but eventually those detainees needed to go somewhere. Handing them over to the Americans was politically impossible, with Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib still fresh in people's minds. And Canada didn't want the responsibility of building and maintaining a prison on Afghan soil. So we decided to transfer them to the Afghans, specifically the NDS. The National Directorate of Security, or NDS for short, was an institution feared by many Afghans, and for good reason. During the war, they were notoriously cruel and corrupt. Ahmed Mulgari remembers one man who was being detained by Canadian forces who said he would rather die than go into NDS custody. He went down to his foot and he was saying that I don't have the money to pay NDS. It was common practice for NDS officers to demand huge bribes from their prisoners to be let out. And if you didn't pay, they torture you. So he was asking to be shot in the head. He was shouting. And he was saying, I don't have money. You are transferring me to torture. And Ahmed says he saw NDS officers casually threatening detainees in the presence of Canadian soldiers. He remembers one meeting between two Canadian civilian advisors, military police, and an NDS colonel. They were discussing a prisoner with special medical needs, but the NDS colonel didn't want to take on the sick man. You see, here's my pistol. Shoot him, give me the body, and I'll justify it. Ahmed says that one of the Canadians then said, quote, I will pretend you did not say that, and I did not hear it. Ahmed doesn't know what happened to that man. 
One of the aspects that Ahmed was most disturbed by about these incidents is that much of the time, these Afghans were completely innocent. They weren't Taliban. They'd ended up in Canadian custody because of bad intelligence, incorrect translations, or because someone had a grudge against them. I have never, ever sided with a person who killed Canadian. If I knew this person had one person to do with a Canadian person being killed or soldier being killed, I had no sympathy with that person. I was the first one who was asking them to be punished, those people. But when I knew that the person was innocent, equally I spoke and equally I tried to protect their rights because that was the right thing to do. So Ahmed tried his best to make sure that innocent people weren't being transferred to the NDS. And he had some success. The number of detainees being transferred went down when he was involved. But he says that that made some people suspicious of him. They started investigating me, thought that I was Taliban sympathizer. Just because I spoke the language and I translate what these people were saying. The people saying, I am not a Taliban. I have nothing to do with Taliban. I have a beer. I'm wearing a turban. This is my culture. It doesn't mean that I'm Taliban. It doesn't mean I'm Al-Qaeda. It was very hard for them to believe this. While he was working in Afghanistan, Ahmed went by the codename Pasha in order to protect his identity and his family. But he says that someone within the Canadian forces leaked his real name to the Taliban as retaliation. He was forced to flee Afghanistan and return to Canada. But that didn't mean he planned to stay quiet. It wasn't long before he got in touch with Amir Adaran, a lawyer in Ottawa who was asking questions about how detainees were being treated in Afghanistan. Alongside being a lawyer, Amir is also a professor of public health and a general shit disturber who has never shied away from controversy. He was born and raised in the United States, and his American background means that he doesn't possess the fussy politeness that many of us Canadians can fall into. And he says that in the years after the invasion of Iraq, he was profoundly affected by the images of American soldiers torturing Iraqis. And you'll recall, I'm sure, the iconic, horrific images from Abu Ghraib prison of a man standing, Christ-like, with his arms out, but wires attached to him and hooded for electric shocks. That memory stayed with me when I moved back to Canada. I made a promise. Not on my watch was torture going to happen in Canada. No way. Not in a war that was being conducted ostensibly in my name. And it wasn't long before he did some digging. He read an article in the Globe and Mail about an agreement that Canadian forces had made with the Afghan government to transfer people they detained to the National Directorate of Security. We knew at that point in time that the Afghans used torture. And here we had the top Canadian general, General Hillier, getting into an agreement with torturers. So Amir decided he needed to see a copy of that agreement. The Department of National Defense didn't want to make it public, but through his connections, he was able to get a leaked copy. And immediately he could see that there was a major problem. Once a detainee was handed over to the NDS, Canadian soldiers didn't have the right to check in to see how they were being treated. This was unlike the agreements the Dutch and the British militaries had signed. The detainees would be transferred, 
and no Canadian would ever need to see him again, and the Afghans could just do their magic. And you know what I mean by that. So Amir began to fire off freedom of information requests. And surprisingly, he actually got back some useful documents. I found the case of of a detainee who had been picked up in fine health, but magically, by the time he was ready for transfer, he had wounds. And he'd only been, it would appear, in Canadian custody for that period of time. How did he go from being fine to being wounded while in Canadian custody? That's an interesting question. The military, as well as the Civilian Complaints Commission, both opened up investigations into the allegations. And Amir continued to hammer away at the issue. He wrote op-eds. He helped launch lawsuits against the federal government about the issue. And he filed more FOIs. He got back human rights reports that the Department of Foreign Affairs had put together, clearly demonstrating that we were aware that the Afghan government was torturing detainees. And he tried to get back information about who exactly was being detained. First, I'd filed an access to information request for the identities and photographs of some of these detainees because I thought if they're locked up in an Afghan torture chamber, they might actually want a lawyer to help them out, but I need to know who they are. Of course, I wasn't told who they were. The identities were redacted. The government said it was to protect their privacy. The government that was willing to transfer them to known torturers was all of a sudden deeply concerned about their privacy and whether a lawyer might know who they were to help them sue. I decided to poke a hole in that using farce. I went back and I amended my access request and I said, look, I don't want the photos of the detainees anymore. I want you to black out the faces and just give me the photos of their hairdos. I just want to see their hair, not their face, nothing that would allow me to recognize them. Well, the combined intelligence of the Canadian government came back and said photos of hair would violate privacy. Amir took the issue to court and was astonished to find a judge agreed with the government. Pictures of hair would be a privacy violation. And here we saw judges willing to do anything they had to do to make sure the military wasn't embarrassed. Through Amir's work, the story began to get bigger and bigger. But both the military and the conservative government continued to say that they had full faith in their Afghan partners. And outside of one instance where three Taliban prisoners were allegedly beaten in 2006, Canada completely denied that the torture of detainees was even an issue. But in Afghanistan, a pair of journalists would blow the story wide open and ensure that no one could deny what was taking place. Sharif Sharaf is a lifelong Kandahari and a longtime journalist. He worked as a stringer for Western news outlets for nearly two decades. You heard some of his story in our very first episode of this season, when he was spirited out of Kabul by Ukrainian commandos. And though Sharif helped author some of the most important stories about the war in the Globe and Mail, his byline was never in the paper. One procedure I was using in that time in my life when I work with the media, I told all of them, please not put my name in any story because I scared from Taliban and from government in that time. So you can't see my name in any media. But I did many stories, many documentaries. And in 2007, he was talking to a man who had a message for Canada. Please tell to Canadians not to hand us to Afghan government because 
when the Canadian capture Afghan local people, and there is no problem in our case, after the handover asked to Afghan police or NDS, like National Directorate for Security, they take bribes from us. This is a big problem for us. And if they didn't pay the bribes, they'd be tortured. So Sharif took the story to Graham Smith, a reporter who'd been covering the war for the Globe and Mail. Graham had returned to Afghanistan to investigate how detainees were being treated. He said, please, tell him to come and we will do interview with him. I said, okay. A week later, the three of them were doing an interview at the Continental Hotel in Kandahar City. And the man told them about how he had been captured by the Canadians and given over to the Afghan police, how he had been held for three days with no food, how an interrogator had punched him so hard that he lost his teeth on the left side of his mouth, and how Canadian soldiers had come by in between the assaults, telling him that he had better talk or the Afghan cops would just continue to do the same. But Graham and Sharif knew that they needed more than just one man's account. And I told him, you are our friend. Please help with us and find us many people like you that this thing happened to them. He said, yes, I know many people. Local people, not Taliban. I will find local people to speak with you. So we continued this process. We did many interviews with local people. They were able to get a few more examples of torture, but it wouldn't have been enough to publish. They needed more. And then Sharif had an idea. He had a friend who was the chief of staff at Sarpoza Prison, where many alleged Taliban fighters were being held. I shared this idea with him also that if we enter to the political side of the prison and speak with the Taliban, could you help with us? He said, yes, I will help with you. No problem. Together, Sharif, Graham, and Sharif's friend at the prison created a plan. They would approach the prison warden and tell him that they wanted to do a story about the prison. It'd be a chance for him to look good in a big international publication. And while they were there, Sharif's friend at the prison would sneak them over to where the Taliban were being held. He said, you're welcome. Tomorrow, come to my office, we will do interview. The warden toured them around, pointing out the various things that needed to be repaired and how international donors could help. By Afghan standards, it was well-maintained, but that wasn't saying much. So it was damaged very badly. Most of the rooms were like a hole, big, big holes at heart. After some negotiations, the warden allowed them to go into the political wing to interview Taliban detainees. But he asked for a price. He demanded a bribe of three flashlights. Sharif and Graham came back again and again to talk to the detainees. It was 15 days, and every day we were doing interviews, sometimes three people, one day, four people, five people. It depends on the situation, depends on the interview. Some of the interviews are taking two hours. Some of the interviews are taking 30 minutes. Some of the interviews are taking four hours, five hours. Depends on the situation, depends on the person. But it was more than, I think, more than 30 people we interviewed. And the stories they told were chilling. Beatings electrocutions, many described being whipped with bundles of electrical cables. They showed Graham and Sharif the scars that the torture had left on their bodies, and many of them appeared to be mentally broken from the ordeal. 
Most of them had been captured by Canadian soldiers and then given over to Afghan police or the NDS. One man, Abdul Wali, said he had been relaxing in a vineyard when Canadian forces surrounded him and took him into custody. He said that the Canadians didn't harm him, but when he was given over to Afghan police, he was beaten right away. They attacked him with the butts of their rifles, beat him with their fists, and this went on for days. And then, they asked for money and threatened to send him to NDS if he didn't pay up. He couldn't afford a bribe, so he was sent to be tortured for another month. It only stopped when he was sent to prison. Abdul Wali said he wasn't Taliban and he hadn't done anything wrong. The Globe and Mail published their report in April 2007. Through the 30 face-to-face interviews Graham and Sharif had done, they were able to demonstrate how systematic the torture had been and how it would have been nearly impossible for any Canadian involved in transferring those detainees to Afghan custody to not know about it. And what's clear now is that not only did Canadians know the torture was taking place, we were benefiting from it. Here's Amir Adaran again. There was a document that, that came into, into my possession that explained the, the procedure to be followed when a detainee had been transferred by the Canadian forces to the Afghan National Directorate of Security and interrogated. And the thrust of the document was, be sure you understand from the National Directorate of Security what they learned. In other words, this was the, the document that said, We were transferring detainees to known torturers, that much we had known for some time, but that we were asking those known torturers to report back to us on the results of their interrogation. In other words, we were obtaining the fruits of torture, not simply turning a blind eye to the use of torture. And that is a categorically different thing. When you as a military in a country say, These people use torture. They've interrogated my guy. I'd like to know what they found out. My God. That removes any claim of moral superiority that Canada had in the war in Afghanistan that were actively soliciting information back from torturers. The revelations about detainee torture that emerged in the early months of 2007 would haunt the rest of the war effort. But the essential question still remained. Exactly how much did Canadian officials know about the torture? It would take another two years for Canadians to get the answer. Between 2007 and 2009, the Afghan detainee issue continued to fester. And in 2009, a special parliamentary committee began to examine the issue in depth. And it was there that Richard Colvin, a senior foreign affairs official who had spent 17 months in Afghanistan, told the public exactly what he knew. I was very surprised that Mr. Colvin chose to break the code of silence that seems to infect Canadian public servants. I was not surprised at all at what he said about torture. What was surprising was that the cowards, and I use the word advisedly, who fill the public service in this country... One decent person found his way in, and that was Mr. Colvin. What Colvin told the committee was Canadian officials in Afghanistan had known that torture was taking place as early as 2006. Here's Richard Colvin speaking at the committee. 
During those crucial first days, what happened to our detainees? According to a number of reliable sources, they were tortured. The most common forms of torture were beatings, whipping with power cables, and the use of electricity. Also common was sleep deprivation, use of temperature extremes, the use of knives and open flames, and uh, sexual abuse, that is rape. According to our information, the likelihood is that all the Afghans we handed over were tortured. In case you missed that, Richard was saying that it's likely every Afghan we transferred was tortured. And according to documents, we transferred over 400 Afghans between 2006 and 2010. And not only did Canadians on the ground in Kandahar know what was happening, they tried to warn their higher-ups in Ottawa. As I learned more about our detainee practices, <clears throat> I came to the conclusion that they were contrary to Canada's values, contrary to Canada's interests, contrary to Canada's official policies, and also contrary to international law. Starting in May 2006, as we in the field became aware of the scope and severity of these problems, we began informing Ottawa about them. We informed them about systemic problems of torture in Afghan jails. And if we don't want our detainees tortured, we shouldn't hand them to the NDS. Senior officials in DFAT and the Canadian forces did not welcome our reports or advice. It was only when it became a major media story that the government began to pay attention. But instead of trying to address the problem, they began to cover it up. At first, we were mostly ignored. However, by April 2007, we were receiving written messages from the senior Canadian government coordinator for Afghanistan to the effect that we should be quiet and do what we were told. And also phone messages from a defate assistant deputy minister suggesting that in future, we should not put things on paper, but instead use the telephone. And reports on detainees began sometimes to be censored with crucial information removed. He says that detainees continued to be transferred and tortured all the way until the end of that year. And he believes that many of these people were entirely innocent of any crimes. The Afghans I'm discussing today were picked up by conventional forces during routine military operations and on a basis typically not of intelligence, but suspicion or unproven denunciation. According to a very authoritative source, many of the Afghans we detained had no connection to the insurgency whatsoever. Some of these Afghans may have been foot soldiers or day fighters, but many were just local people, farmers, truck drivers, tailors, peasants, random human beings in the wrong place at the wrong time. Young men in their fields and villages who were completely innocent but were nevertheless rounded up. In other words, we detained and handed over for severe torture a lot of innocent people. During the hearings, Colvin was also asked about what he knew about allegations against Asadullah Khalid, the governor of Kandahar, who we talked about during our last episode. Once again, he makes it clear that we knew about everything he was doing. He was a... Um known to us very early on in May, June 06 as a uh, unusually bad actor on human rights issues. He was um, known to have uh, had a dungeon in um, Ghazni, his previous province, where he used to detain people for, for money. He was uh, known to be uh, running a narcotics operation. He had a criminal gang. He uh, had people killed who got in his way. And then in Kandahar, we found out that uh, he had indeed set up a similar dungeon under his guest house. He was known to um, personally torture people in, in that dungeon. So um, on a, a range of issues, uh, governance, security, um, human rights, um, he was uh, a, a serious problem. So all of this was known to Canadians by mid-2006. But despite Richard Colvin's bombshell testimony, federal government officials and senior military commanders continued to deny that they knew about torture, either by the NDS, the Afghan police, or Asadullah Khalid. 
and they attacked Colvin's credibility. If everyone knew, why is he the only person speaking up about it? Surely, if the torture was this pervasive, there must be others willing to go public. Here's Amir Adarat again. It's a great frustration for me as an American in, in Canada, exactly how morally and ethically backwards the public service is in this country, that even when terrible things are happening right under their nose, right up to the edge of war crimes, they'll keep secrets. And that doesn't happen in the U.S. American public servants routinely leak that kind of stuff. But in this country, nope, our public service culture is just shamefully bad. And along comes the happy exception, like Richard Colvin, to tell us the truth. But there was one other man willing to step forward, Ahmed Mulgari. Here's some of what he said when he testified in that same committee a few months later. I'm Ahmed Shah Mulgari, although some people knows me as Pasha, my Canadian Forces code name. And he told them about everything he had seen. But the raid you heard about at the top of the show, where a 17-year-old boy was killed and Afghans were arrested to cover it up. About Canadian forces transferring detainees, even though they knew they would be tortured. And about all of the times he had tried to make it stop. They knew it. All along the chain of commands, they knew what was going on. Everybody knew. I cannot believe that Mr. Defense Minister Peter McKay says that he doesn't know. I can't believe that. But if Mr. Peter McKay says that he doesn't know, and I would like you to ask him that question in the House of Commons, in a question period, I want him to sit right across from me and look at my eyes and say that he doesn't know. Over and over during his testimony, conservative MPs grilled Ahmed, asking him if he was accusing respected military leaders like General Rick Hillier of lying when they said that they didn't know what was happening. What I told you, the story about in Hazraji Baba, that there was over 10 men was arrested from 10 years old to 90 years old. Mm -hmm. I, with all due respect, asked Mr. Retired General Hillary to tell me and explain to me that a 90 years old man, a 90 years old man, he couldn't even walk without help. And his hands were tied, his foot was shackled, and he was blindfolded. And sometimes he couldn't walk fast enough. They have pushed him where he fell many times and he had injuries in his body. Can he please explain to me how can this person become a fighter? Are you calling General Thompson a liar? He Are you calling General Fraser a liar? He didn't, speak, he didn't speak the truth. Are you calling General Gauthier a liar? Oh. I'm getting to him. Are you, are you calling General Hillier a liar? I don't call nobody a liar. You just did. the chain of command. But what I'm saying is that you're trying no, to sorry. protect this government. You are in, in a hot... Mr. 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 Don't try to play like a child. Mr. Mr. So, so you are calling all of the generals who testified before this committee liars. If, because they all said they had no knowledge, direct what knowledge I was of asked, What I was asked about General Hillier, what he said, I am saying that's not true. What he said, that's not the truth. Today, Ahmed remembers the immense amount of hate mail he received after his testimony. He was even attacked by a stranger. 
I was in a gym and then he came and then he was kind of blocking my way where I was moving from one side. I didn't want to talk to him. And he was saying, okay, why did you betray the Canadian forces? We fed you, we do this, we do this, and then you betray us. Finally, he was about trying to swing at me. And then I, I had to leave. And for a long time, I watched my back. But Ahmed says that he did what he did because of his commitment to the mission. Because he wanted to help save the lives of Canadians and Afghans alike. To be honest, I knew most of these people who got killed in, during the rotation three and four. I have felt when I saw the body of each Canadian died as if it was a member of my family. If we're doing stuff to help insurgency where they are keep killing our soldiers and activities are increasing, then there's a problem. But they didn't want to see and they didn't want to hear that problem. Despite everything that Richard Colvin and Ahmed Mulgari revealed about detainee torture, no one was ever held to account. Amir Adaran was Ahmed's lawyer, and he was sitting with him during his testimony. And he says that the government MPs simply didn't want to know the truth. The conservative members of parliament who, who um, questioned Mr. Malgari did so in bad faith, did so to protect the Harper government from allegations of being involved in torture and had no interest whatsoever in actually redeeming this country from something as atrocious as torture. They were solely interested in protecting their political reputations. If Canadians transferred Afghan detainees, even though they knew they would be tortured, that's a war crime. And liberals and the NDP both called for a public inquiry to get to the bottom of these allegations, to fully reveal what had happened during those years in Kandahar. There was never any hope that the Conservative government would call an inquiry. But both the NDP and the Liberals pledged that if they were elected, they would do just that. So when Justin Trudeau was elected Prime Minister in 2015, it looked like there would finally be some answers. But then, nothing. There was no inquiry. And the man who made that call to not hold an inquiry was a former Canadian soldier himself, the new Minister of Defense, Harjit Sajjan. Harjit Sajjan was the breakout star of Trudeau's cabinet. He had served in the Canadian forces, eventually rising to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. And he was on the ground in Kandahar in 2006, at the same time that allegations of Canadian complicity and torture were first starting to come to light. Craig Scott is an international human rights lawyer and a former NDP MP who spent many years working on the detainee file while he was in parliament. And he was at the forefront of trying to get the conservative government to open a public inquiry. And after he lost his seat in 2015 and the liberals came to power, Craig continued to push for one. So I did an e-petition, E70, that basically called for a commission of inquiry to be called on the whole transfer detainees issue. Minister Sajjan is the one to respond, to say not necessary. Craig felt that Harjit Sajjan shouldn't be the person making that decision. Because here's the thing. Sajjan wasn't just a Canadian soldier in Kandahar in 2006. According to a book by historian Sean Maloney, Sajjan during that time was working with Asadullah Khalid, the former governor of Kandahar, and on military intelligence in close collaboration with the NDS. 
Here's Craig Scott reading a quote from Sajjan from Maloney's book. This is Harjit Sajjan speaking to Maloney. My responsibilities were vague at first. General Fraser had me work with Governor of Kandahar Province, Asadullah Khalif, but I also worked at the PRT, the Provincial Reconstruction Team, to assess emergent Afghan policing issues. The Kandahar Joint Coordination Committee, or JCC, had already been established by the Americans, but it was only a coordination cell. It has no continuity, no resources, no focus. I discovered that there was a gold mine of information flowing into the governor's palace. You'll recall from our last episode that Asadullah Khalid was one of the most notorious men in Kandahar. He's been credibly accused of a litany of crimes, drug trafficking, rape, the murder of five UN officials, personally torturing detainees on the governor's compound. And Ahmed Mulgari believes that Khalid tried to have him killed in an IED attack. This was the man Harjit Sajjan told a historian that he'd been working with. And in addition, Sajjan was working with the NDS, an agency that was known to torture detainees as a matter of course. Craig Scott believes that all of this means that Sajjan shouldn't be making the call of whether or not to hold an inquiry into the detainee scandal. The decision maker was the Minister of National Defense, who was a key actor in the key period in the intelligence operations of the Canadian government liaising with the Afghan security apparatus in 2006. It seems clear that if there was an inquiry, one of the people you'd want to have testify would be a Canadian soldier who had been centrally involved in sharing intelligence with people and agencies that we know tortured people. He would be a witness about what was known when people were being transferred. He'd be a witness on what was being done with information coming from the agency that was receiving our transferees. You don't have to make any suppositions about whether he had any connection at all to decisions to transfer. I'm assuming he didn't, but he was there in a central way. Craig Scott filed a complaint with the Conflict of Interest Commissioner, and Sajjan told her that he was simply deployed as a reservist to Afghanistan, where he was responsible for capacity building with local police forces. And she concludes, basically, that I found no information to suggest that Mr. Sajjan actually had any knowledge related to Afghan detainees or that he had any involvement in that matter. Now, we wanted to talk to Minister Sajjan about all of this, about what he knew and if he was the right person to make the call into whether or not there should be an inquiry into these very serious allegations of war crimes. And to our surprise, he agreed to an interview. So my co-producer Jordan Cornish and I took a very early train to Ottawa and headed to Parliament. After making our way through security, we found ourselves in a conference room making small talk with Harjit Sajjan. Oh, you are? That's right. Yeah, well, North Delta, but you know. Okay. No, no, it's it's all all the same. I wanted to start off just asking him about how intelligence gathering worked during those critical years of 2006 and 2007. And what were some of the biggest challenges that we were facing um, as a Canadian forces, as, as, as an international force when it came to intelligence gathering? And immediately, Sajjan rejected my underlying premise that he was an important part of our intelligence machinery. First of all, I want to make it very clear, and I've always said this, yeah. uh, when anybody's called me from the, from the, that I was intelligence, I actually wasn't ever an intelligence officer. What I ended up doing was, as I started going out just with the, with the patrols, was just talking to people. I was assigned to go to uh, the PRT, the Provincial Reconstruction Team, 
uh, which was based in Kandahar City. And from there, they were setting up what's called a joint, uh, a police joint command center. So where our, you know, information can come in. So the JCC wasn't even a concept. Um, so that's the first thing I helped set up. The JCC was the Joint Coordination Committee, where Canadian military and Afghans, including the NDS, would share information. And according to his own account, Sajjan was instrumental in getting the NDS to provide more intelligence. So I just started building just trust with them, um, sharing a little bit about what we could, uh, just talking to them. All of a sudden, when I built that trust with them, the information just came. And so I'd write all this stuff up. And send it up. And uh, because I was an intelligence, it wouldn't be seen as intelligence report. I'm just listening to people. But because you had genuine trust with somebody, they share some very accurate information. And then I got to what I really wanted to talk about. Asadullah Khalid. Could you tell me just a little bit about, like, what kind of a man was he when you actually talked to him face to face? Because he's such a, a, a strange kind of figure that looms over this period. Sajjan didn't answer my question right away. He spent the next five minutes telling me a story about helping a Kandahari recover a stolen motorcycle. But then finally, he got to call it. So when it comes to Asadullah Khalid and many others, I would always look at uh, through the lens of the population. And once I found out what was really going on, what I we changed our focus. When did you find out what was really going on? Because, I mean, I think this is one of the kind of important questions. 2006. 2006. Yeah. yeah, like, and yet you still, he's still the governor of Kandahar. You still have to deal with him. And yet he's, you know, he's involved in torture. Um, you know, how does well, that Well, at that time, work? we didn't know, I mean, Tor- the, yeah. my, my point is, at the, at the end of the day, we have to do what we have to do. We can't tell another government on how it needs mm-hmm. to be done. We raise our, our, our concerns, but our job at the end of the day is to do what we've been tasked to do, is for the safety of, of, of the people there. Um, and what, so our folks uh, on, on the ground, we would focus on the villages. Yeah. We'd focus on delivering uh, support when we needed to uh, fight, we'd fight on, on, on their behalf. But Canada wasn't simply tolerating Asadullah Khalid. We were actively supporting him. In 2006, President Hamid Karzai was looking to replace him. But it was the Canadians who convinced him to keep Khalid as governor. This was revealed in secret diplomatic memos that became public in 2009. In retrospect, do you ever worry that some of that intelligence was tainted by torture? And Sajjan basically told me that the JCC didn't have anything to do with Governor Asadullah Khalid, even though their meetings took place on his compound. No, the yeah, JCC we, should not be looked upon as being connected with any of the, uh, the, the, the government structure. JCC, weren't you meeting at the governor's house? No, it was a, no, no. So it was, a, it was a massive, it's a massive yeah, compound, right and there was a separate piece. The people that were meeting with their professionals, but those professionals were often from the National Directorate of Security, the agency who tortured the majority of Afghans who were transferred to their custody. Sajjan didn't answer whether or not he worried that the intelligence we received from the Afghans was obtained through torture, and I asked him about why he had decided not to hold an inquiry into detainee torture. The Liberal Party for a long time was pushing for an inquiry into detainee torture. And as Minister of Defense, he decided not to pursue that 
I mean, could you tell me why you made that decision? No, actually, the because first of all, the, if you look at all the inquiries that were actually done, it's not that we didn't decide to do it. It was already there were already uh, um, uh, the work had already already taken place. If any new information that was brought forward would be investigated. In fact, actually, anytime a complaint that was come forward and, and complaints once in a while came in from various people, that was always investigated by um, um, by the police. So all that work was actually uh, t- taken place. And 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 I totally understand. What you're saying, but it, there's a sentiment that those investigations were half-hearted. I mean, I've spoken to journalists who are on the ground in Kandahar who were able to talk to dozens of detainees during the period from 2006 to 2010, who were transferred into Afghan custody by Canadians and who then claimed to be tortured. And a lot of these investigations, whether it was the military police, seemed to not be able to find many complainants even. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, I feel like I think there is a call for a more fulsome investigation, even today, many years later. I mean, how would you respond to those? Calls? So first of all, there actually was done. As soon as those things came, I, uh, even I, if I recall when I was serving at that time, those uh, the, not only the investigations, those inquiries were actually taking place. And before I became Minister of, of Defense, those had already come to a uh, conclusion. Uh, when, but when it came to any new information that if it was to be brought forward, of course it would be um, um, uh, lo- looked at. But this is an area that was was um, actually uh, 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 gone into extreme detail um, at that time. Sudgeon's right that there were a small number of military and civilian investigations, but they were hampered by the fact that the government refused to provide them with the necessary documents. They were extremely limited in scope. But why not have it in a more public kind of form as opposed to, because we've been out of Afghanistan now for many years. I mean, while you were minister, why not let all this come to light, especially because the accusations are pretty serious, right? I mean, we're talking about potential war crimes. And I think we don't want to make those same mistakes again in a future conflict if it did happen. In this well, first of all, when it come, the, we, the, uh, the work that was already done, it was looked into extremely um, uh, in, in depth at time. If there was anything, a new information that was going to be brought forward that would change things, of course it would be um, looked at. This is something that everybody takes extremely. I could, at that time, uh, for, um, uh, when you're serving, when it comes to the Canadian point of view, regardless of which deployment you go on, this is what you focus on. Uh, as a reminder for all the work that actually needs to be done when it comes to uh, war crimes and uh, any other uh, things that you might see. It is your responsibility. And I did try one last time to talk to him about working with Asadullah Khalid. Sajjan, according to his own account, had numerous interactions with the man. I wanted to know something, anything he could tell me about what he knew about one of the most notorious men in Afghanistan. He refused to budge. I'll just one day, uh, one day I might talk a little bit more detail about this, but this is not the right time. Minister Sajjan did not specify when the right time would be. So what to make of all of that? What's clear to me is that when he was a soldier, Harjit Sajjan worked closely with the governor of Kandahar and the NDS, both entities that employed torture. By his own admission, he passed intelligence to the NDS and received intelligence from them that led to Canadian operations. And General David Fraser, who is commanding NATO forces during Operation Medusa, has publicly credited Sajjan's intelligence with leading to the killing or capturing of 1,500 insurgents during that battle. All of this puts Harjit Sajjan 
at the center of a network of intelligence gathering in Kandahar in 2006, a network that included Afghan authorities trying to obtain intelligence by means of torture. In our reporting, we found no evidence that Sajjan did anything illegal, but he was deeply enmeshed in the system that led to Afghans being tortured. So even though Sajjan wasn't involved in the transfer of detainees, I do find it hard to believe he wouldn't have heard of allegations that the NDS was torturing prisoners. And it strikes me as completely inappropriate for him to make the call on whether or not we should have an inquiry into detainee abuse. Here's Amir Adaran again. I mean, you can't be in the Canadian forces in Kandahar where torture is going on, handling intelligence, and not be tarred by it yourself in some way. And then he becomes minister and he hushes it all up. Well, that's, that's what happens in this country. Now that the Afghan war is over, it's highly unlikely we'll ever see an inquiry into detainee torture. Ahmed Mulgari believes that torture helped the Taliban and paved the way to their eventual victory. They helped insurgency. They gave a life to insurgency. That's what they did. And he has a hard time reconciling his love of Canada with the crimes he saw being committed in Kandahar. We were on the wrong side of history. We would remember a country that we did not compensate people we hurt. We would remember as a country that we went with a good intention, but we caused more harm. And now the people of Afghanistan is paying for the mistakes that we have committed. Ahmed Mulgari did his best to serve Canada, first by going to Afghanistan, and then by telling the truth about the things he witnessed. But at that time, you needed me, and then you asked me for help. I extended my hand. But Ahmed says that today, he needs Canada's help to get his family out of Afghanistan. They asked me for help, and I went with them. I asked for help, and they told me that your family is not qualified. We have to bring the dogs and cats from Kabul because they have higher value than my family. So they brought 200 cats using C-17 and landed in Vancouver. But I'm begging for them that my family is living in a hiding. And I'm asking these questions that anybody in the future, if this government call upon them to help, they should remember this one thing. When they are done with you, your value and your value of your family is less than those dogs that running around in the streets of those countries. Ahmed is not the only Canadian who made sacrifices for his country who now feels betrayed. After returning to Canada, many Afghan veterans felt the same way. And there's one case in particular that stands out. A Canadian soldier who lost his life because of his service. And then the Canadian military spent years slandering his name, and attacking his family. That's next time on Commons. 
That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can now support all of Canada Land's political podcasts, including Commons, Wag the Dug, and The Backbench, for only $2.99 a month. And leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Graham Smith, Sharif Sharaf, and Paul Coring in The Globe and Mail, David Puglesi in The Ottawa Citizen, Sandy Garasino in The National Observer, Murray Brewster in The Canadian Press, Matthew Behrens in Rabble, and so many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production by Noor Azria. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes, or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.